Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 30 of Radio 815, the podcast dedicated to the works of J.J. Abrams and the extended Bad Robot universe. I am Matt Crandall, here as always with my co-host Marcelo Inestroza. Our current journey has brought us to Lost Season 1. Today we are taking a look at Episodes 9, 10, and 11, kicking off Episode 9, Solitary, a Saeed flashback episode where Saeed finds the cable running from the ocean into the jungle, follows it, and gets caught in a trap. Basically, he's captured by a mysterious woman, the French woman from the, the recording. And a lot of this episode focuses on Saeed's backstory, the mysterious photo that he has with him, and this French woman that we come to learn how she sort of got to the island and what has gone on. But there is a ton of mystery surrounding this entire episode. Marcella, what did you think of Solitary? For me, the selling point of this episode was the showing the uh, backstory of Saeed and his relationship between this young woman who is apparently involved with a terrorist organization that Saeed is investigating through the Republican Guard. I really, really felt their connection and Saeed's sort of uh, sort of discontent and his difficulty actually torturing this woman. I really connected with that aspect of the story. I did like in this episode that we uh, finally figured out who um, the woman sending the message was. But I did find it very, very odd that this woman uh, by the name of Russo would kidnap Saeed and then out of nowhere ask her about her uh, ask her about this individual that Saeed knows nothing about. Now, of course, we know who this individual is and we know where she is and who took her. But at the time of watching this episode, the first uh, uh, the first time I ever watched it, I was like, why is this woman asking about this, this individual that obviously Saeed knows nothing about? Is she completely off a rocker or is there a point to all this? Yeah, and I think they make Rousseau do... do she does seem like she has gone crazy from living on the island alone for so long. And especially when she tells the story of, you know, her co-workers or friends got sick and had to be put down. Um, but her saying, you know, where is Alex? Where's Alex? And we're like, who the hell is Alex? Why would she think Saeed would know? And she really doesn't take no for an answer when Saeed's saying like, I don't know what you're talking about because she is kind of far gone. So we, we don't know much about Danielle at this point. Um, Russo, we're trying to sort of piece it together. And yes, if you've seen the show, you know who Alex is and what's gone on there. But I did like that in this, it's really ambiguous. And only in those final moments where, you know, Saeed's like, well, who, who is Alex? Like, this, like, why are you asking me this? And she's like, Alex is my child. And then wanders off into the forest. And uh, that was interesting because it's like, okay, th the next few episodes really focus on Claire and her baby. So this is kind of teeing up maybe that there's something more going on with that because 
if this is a woman who is on the island and is missing her child, it makes us start to think that there might be other dangers lurking. What I did really like is that the Saeed backstory is super serious. Like, you know, he was in the Republican Guard or and torturing and, you know, it's like a real Jack Bauer moments where he's trying to get this information. And the, the Island B plot is so light that it's a nice counterbalance to how heavy everything going on with Saeed is. And that's really builds the golf course uh, so that everybody can just chill out and relax and go golfing, which was like a stroke of genius and so much fun. I absolutely love the fact that, like you said, the A plot in this episode with the Saeed backstory stuff is so goddamn heavy. And the 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 B plot is just Hurley recognizing that everybody is basically burnt out and they need some release. And obviously this can't be like all Lord of the Flies and they can't all have sex. So <laughs> Hurley decides to build a golf course and they start playing golf. Towards the end of the episode, when most of the main cast or most of the people that we've been following uh, throughout season one are on the golf course, Sawyer shows up. He tries to extend an olive branch to the, to the rest of the survivors to sort of say to them, I'm not really a dick. I'm a dick trying to redeem myself for, for my past dickery. Sorry, I use the word dick a lot. <laughs> Well, and that's because they point out to him like, hey, man, you know, you're trying so hard to be unlikable that if you just pump the brakes a bit, maybe people actually would come around. And Sawyer gets some good zingers at Jack in the early parts of this episode. One of my favorite lines is um, when they go to the golf course and Sawyer shows up and he's like, doctor playing golf. Now I've heard everything. What's next? Cop eating a donut? <laughs> like, you know, uh just some some fun, lighthearted lines thrown in there, even though the Saeed stuff is about as serious as the show can get with the torture and, you know, him trying to, to wrestle with his feelings for this woman who he's supposed to be extracting information from. And I like that we see Saeed, you know, do this plan so that Nadia can escape um, and we see, you know, him shoot himself and we're like, okay, he's going pretty far to, to try and set this woman free. Cause he does have feelings, but he does have duties. Um, and then of course he tells Danielle that Nadia is dead. So then we're like, Oh dang, what happened now? You know, hindsight, we know that maybe he's not telling the truth in that moment, but, uh, when you're watching this the first time, it's like, dang, like what happened? Like this guy went so far out of his way for this woman. Like, how does it go so wrong? What happened? So they really get you on the hook caring about these characters who we didn't know much about. Um, even in the flashbacks, like we had seen the, the photo of Nadia, but we haven't seen much about her. So I thought that was a nice way to flesh it out and, and still have, some of the levity on the island while this super serious stuff is going on. And so many questions come up from the Danielle storyline of like, what is actually going on on this island um, that we still haven't even scraped the surface at all. I felt that the Saeed and Danielle storyline really set the stage for the overall bigger picture uh, for season two. 
A specific group was brought up a lot, brought up indirectly in this episode. And that brings me to uh, my final two points that I have about this episode. I love the scene where I believe it's Hurley and it's somebody else. And it's this guy named Ethan, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, why are these... Like the first time I watched this, I was like, why are they spending so much time on this random guy that we've never seen before? And it was... It was like it. It was something so out of left field that that the first time I watched it, I really didn't understand why they did it. But of course, all I had to do was watch the next episode and be like, "Oh, holy shit, he is what?" And that brings us basically to the next episode, which is episode ten, raised by another, which is a Claire flashback episode, where we do find this new castaway that we hadn't met before that showed up in the last episode of Ethan, um, who is played by Tom Cruise's cousin, William Mapother. Um, and whenever he shows up, I'm like, okay, like this guy's going to be, he's 90% of the time he like shows up on a show. He's evil. <laughs> so when he first showed up, I'm like, all right, like what's up with this guy? And you know, in this episode, Hurley is tracking down the manifest and he's doing the census at the same time. Um, so we know that something bad is going to come of these two things where Hurley is making a list of who's on the island and then he's using the manifest to check it twice. And he meets this guy, yeah, Ethan, and says, hey, man, uh, Lance. And he's like, no, not Lance. I'm Ethan. Uh, Ethan Rom from Ontario. Which uh, anybody in Ontario listening will know that the ROM is the Royal Ontario Museum. And that's basically what people just call it. It's not called the Royal Ontario Museum. It's just the ROM. Um, so you're like, a dude from Ontario and his last name is ROM? Like, that's messed. Seems fake. Uh, and also, you know, if you take those letters, Ethan ROM as the internet will let you know, it is an anagram for other man. Um, but I do think that that Ontario thing is, is intentional and thrown in there. So that's interesting. And by the end of this episode, you know, we know that, um, Ethan is not on the level and he definitely, (laughs) definitely has some intentions for Claire that don't seem honorable or good, but we aren't quite sure. Um, and speaking of Claire, most of this is her backstory where, you know, we see her in a relationship, figuring out that she's pregnant and trying to find out what she's going to do with this new situation she finds herself in. And that scene where she goes and gets the, you know, psychic to, to give her a reading and he's like, Oh shoot. Like I can't even, can't even go through with this. You got such bad energy around you for that next, like part of the episode. And you're like dreading, like what, what did this guy see? Um, and he ends up being horrible because not only does he then give her the reading and says like, Hey, yeah, there's something wrong with this kid. Like if you don't, if you don't raise him, he's going to be the next Hitler or something. Like, we don't know what what specifically it is, but, like, you have to raise him. And since Claire doesn't want to, 
this is the guy directly responsible for sticking her on this plane because he does actually have some sort of psychic ability and he knew this plane specifically was going to go down. So when she sort of that dawns on her, it's like, my God, like what a bastard to, it's one thing to be like concerned about something and try and convince someone to give up their baby. You literally condemn someone to what could be death by sticking her on a plane that you know is going to crash. Just evil, man. Pure evil. The, the thing that makes it worse is that first he comes off as being insincere and, con- and concerning when Claire and her friend go see him go see him for the first time when he just gets this psychic vision of something evil and he refuses to give Claire her reading the first time. So basically, throughout his whole purposes in this episode, he strings her on, mm-hmm. which is just awful. And to me, I was like, what what purpose could your actions i mean what's what's his end game here what is really the the uh the psychological mindset of some characters who do shit like this and i was like there's no point the the, the only point was to get her on the plane i really love this episode like for example the opening sequence of this episode to me was really really dark disturbing and wonderful um and it really bugged me uh the first time that i watched the episode that jack really didn't um believe claire Uh, it really bugged me that he didn't give her a second thought you know part of the the problem is that because jack is now the sort of the de facto leader but he is also a medical professional you know if somebody is acting this paranoid and he doesn't think there's a cause for it, he thinks it might be like a medical condition where he's got to give them medicine to treat their stress or their PTSD because they've all been through this horrific incident, the plane crash. He's quick to just explain it away by it being stress or PTSD when, you know, we know it's not, But also, it's partly, you know, Jack doesn't have a reason to believe that anyone on the plane would have anything to gain from tormenting Claire or going after her and her baby. Because he still doesn't know that there's anything other than them on this island. I understand why Jack gets there. It is shitty. Like, you're like, oh, why doesn't he believe her? Why is he making her feel so bad? But if you think, like, you know, this guy's a man of science... Um, I can see why he sort of jumps to that conclusion pretty quick. I completely understand that. But even being a man of science, after what he's gone through, especially when he went traping in the woods after somebody who he thought was his father, wouldn't wouldn't he wouldn't he be affected? Um, to the point of having belief a little bit more. I think that that's part of Jack's journey in the show, though, is that. He is such a, a a guy who's like hard facts kind of guy that as he goes, he starts to realize that maybe not everything is easily explained and he should believe more weird stuff. I think that that's part of kind of the journey Jack is on. There's two more points that I would like to make about this episode. One, 
the first time I saw this episode, uh, this episode made me believe in evil Canadians. Uh, <laughs> because I love Canadians. Canadians are awesome. Canadians are the nicest people on the planet. Uh, but when 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 Ethan's storyline gets revealed, I'm like, an evil Canadian. Look, it's an anomaly. They don't <laughs> exist. He's a unicorn. What a hoser. Yeah, and I uh, the, the second point is, uh, well, it's it's twofold. First of all, I had no idea that he was actually related to Tom Cruise. That's a nice pull, man. I had no idea. Yeah, I I seriously had no idea. The last point is, the the act who plays Claire's boyfriend is a total dick. He's an asshole. When my birth mother told my dad that um, she was pregnant with me. My dad had had absolutely no second thoughts of bringing me into this world. And it really bugs the crap out of me when I see uh, people, in people in real life run from responsibility. Mm -hmm. And so, so that particular cog from, uh, from Claire's backstory, specifically in this episode, bugged the ever-loving shit out of me. Yeah, Claire's boyfriend, Thomas, is horrible. And him being so quick to kind of want to wash his hands of the whole situation really makes us instantly dislike him and feel more for Claire because, you know, you would expect some empathy um, or something, some responsibility, which the guy's not willing to take, which is too, too damn bad. Um and the other thing I really liked about this episode was that Charlie and Claire got to spend more time together. So we got to strengthen that dynamic. And when uh, Claire is basically, you know, thinking that she's in the throes of labor and Charlie is like, if I can kick drugs, I can deliver a baby. And the look that she gives him is just, uh, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> those are not the same things, um, was one of those really priceless moments. Uh, so I really like that. Um, the next episode, the final one of this batch is all the best cowboys have daddy issues. Another Jack centric episode. So we're almost halfway through the season. This is the second Jack episode. And this one does a lot to further explain what we saw in the flashbacks in white rabbit with Jack and his dad, his dad's death, his dad's bender, how things went from the guy being, you know, the head of cardiac surgery or whatever to dead in a alcoholic stupor at Australia. Um, and this is a really nice character episode in the flashbacks where Jack has to make a choice. Does he lie and stay loyal to his father who has never treated him the way that Jack thinks that a father should treat a son. He's always been hard on him. He hasn't been very affectionate. Um, or does he stand up, tell the truth and be held to the, the oath he took as a doctor to, you know, look out for their patients and, and not sweep this under the rug just because it's his dad. And those final moments where Jack does do the right thing and make that big choice that changes the dynamic between him and his dad forever and sends his dad on a path that's only going to be bad. Um, Fox is amazing in those scenes and just really adds another layer to Jack where, okay, 
you know, this is a guy who has been through a lot. And when push comes to shove, even if it means going against family, if it's the right thing, Jack will do it. One thing that I loved about this episode is the fact that when uh, when Jack and the others find out that Claire and Charlie have been taken, there is this wonderful tracking shot of Jack and Locke running through the jungle. I mean, Matt, you could correct me and uh, correct my director speak if that's not a tracking shot, but I just love the visual of Jack running through these these high bushes and, and shit. I really um, like the fact that, you know, as a physician, the first rule that you're taught in medical school, and you guys may be thinking, how the hell do I know this? I have a bunch of, I have a bunch of people in my family who are physicians. And the first rule that, that you learn in medical school from day one is the Hippocratic Oath. And the Hippocratic Oath, and the Hippocratic Oath is do no harm. Mm-hmm. And with Christian's intoxication in this episode, I love the fact that, like you said, Jack was conflicted about telling the truth about what happened with this patient. But in the long run, he did what he thought was right in the best interest for future patients and in the best interest for his father, even though the storm that he caused from telling the truth to the review board, you know, ultimately led to his father's death. I I really, really loved that cog of this episode. Yeah. I think that that was a nice added layer to, to the backstory of Jack. And it shows us why he is further wrestling with, the guilt or whatever it is, which is why he sees, you know, his father in white rabbit. Um, we, we realize like, Oh, okay. This guy stood up, did the right thing. And it was the right thing professionally and morally, but it has personal consequences. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting dynamic. And of course, most of this episode is spent trying to track down, Claire and Charlie, they now know that Ethan has taken them. Um, and there's that moment where Ethan's like, if you do not stop following me, I'll kill one of them, um, which is super dramatic. And they kind of take it not as a super serious threat. And then, of course, they end up coming across Charlie, who has been hung from a tree, which is like, oh, shit, things got super serious really quick. and. That whole sequence, I remember like watching this back in the day and just being like, oh my God, like, are they going to kill off Charlie here? This is nuts. But also thinking because this was still a time where, you know, movies and TV stars didn't mingle as much, like there wasn't as much crossover as there is today where like movies and TV are the same thing. It doesn't matter. Um, So knowing that Dominic Monaghan had come from like the success of Lord of the Rings, it's like, okay, was the guy only signed for, for half a season? Is is this guy actually dead? Um, but then they, you know, anybody who's seen Mission Impossible 3 knows that J.J. loves a good pounding on the chest scene. Um, so this this uh, was, you know, before MI3 came out, but certainly that's something that I'm sure is, is just a J.J. trademark at this point. It's been his stuff that he's worked on so much that um 
Jack will not give up even when Kate is saying like, please stop. Like we, you can't, you're just making it worse at this point, but he, he can't let it go because you know, the real world stuff is weighing so heavy on him that he can't lose another one in a similar situation. So he's thinking back to all those surgeries and that one in specific where he couldn't save the patient. And so he just keeps going. And then Charlie does take that, that breath and comes back to life. Um, which was nice because like I said, I really thought that maybe they were going to kill him off. Uh, so it was a good, a good fake out. Nowadays I'd probably be more cynical and be like, there's no way he's dead. But back then I was like, Oh my God, they might, they might be doing this. That whole scene with Charlie being found hung by the tree uh, was exhilarating. And that's the re- that's the first scene that the show sort of says to you, we're not effing around, you mm-hmm. know, even even one of even one of our main cast, ca- uh, even one of our main casts can die. And I love the fact that th- throughout the panic of Jack giving Charlie uh, basically punches in the in the in the midsection, you start to hear Michael Giacchino's lovely, lovely musical score. And if you've seen Lost before, you know what that musical score means. But the first time you hear it, you don't know what it means. Mm-hmm. And I think that his use of that music in that specific scene sort of spoiled some other scenes that 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 come later in the show. I think it's you have to have really like watch the show over and over again, probably to make those associations. And it's something that certainly on a rewatch, you probably notice more than you do watching for the first time. And certainly now where like, you know, if you want to hear Chiquino's life and death or whatever, you can just jump on the internet and listen to it. But at the time, like, I don't know that the show thought whenever they use this music, that they're really tipping their hand or anything. But uh, man, yeah, the, Chikino's work is is top notch in this episode for sure. Since we started talking about loss, I feel that we haven't really given Chikino a tip of the cap because his music throughout the whole series is on point. And I love uh, Life and Death so much that when I when I cease to exist on this mortal coil, that is a song that's going to play me out of this world. I've already spoken to my loved ones. And they promised me they're going to play it. Although, I don't know what they're going to play. I mean, they they could. They they could have been lying to me. They could play something else. (laughs) Another song that I, uh, that I, that I hate. I have no idea because obviously I'll be dead. (laughs) (laughs) You won't be there. We couldn't get the rights to Michael Giacchino's uh, Life and Death. So here's Justin Bieber's Baby. (laughs) Like, you'll never know. You'll never know. I, I really like this episode. Because of the evil Canadian guys, the the evil Ethan stuff, I thought, I thought the first time that we actually see him standing over Jack and he says, "If you don't stop following me, I'll kill one of them." Mm-hmm. That to me is terrifying. Yeah, and you know, you know, and even to my mom, um, the first time she saw that, she you know was so engrossed in the in the in the episode that when Ethan shows up. She jumped a little bit. So so that's a moment that will always stick with me. But the thing that really made this episode uh, my favorite of this batch is the 
uh, flashback story between Jack and his father. It was just wonderful to see. Yeah, no, it's it's one of the the best uses of flashbacks and juxtaposition to what's happening on the island. Um, certainly out of these three for sure. And I just, Jack's story is so interesting to see why he is the way he is that I really liked all of that. Um, the other stuff that I really dug in this is that while there is some super serious stuff happening, um, Locke and Boone, uh, out tracking, um, get some funny dialogue where Boone's trying to guess what Locke's job is. Um, and he doesn't believe him when he says that he works for a box company. Uh, so I thought that was great. And then, uh, they they plant a little bit of a seed. Seems like nothing at the time, but you know, seven episodes from now, we know this one thing: the great scene with Walt and Hugo, um, earlier playing, and uh, he loses the game. And Walt says, "Hey, you owe me twenty thousand dollars." And Hurley goes, "You'll get it." And we know, yeah, he probably would have gotten it because uh, twenty thousand dollars ain't nothing to Hurley. I thought you were gonna bring up the red shirt. Dude. Oh well, the red shirt thing is hilarious too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, me being a Star Trek fan, there's all sorts of levels of, of ten degrees of Kevin Bacon in that thing. Yeah, uh, you know, especially if you know where JJ ultimately goes. I thought they were pretty strong. Um, you know, super entertaining, um, and we're starting to get into the heart of like what's going on, and are there others, and how many others other are there on the island which is something that we didn't really think was going to be the case from all the other episodes and of course this episode ends with that great scene where boone drops the flashlight and instead of just hearing a flashlight fall into mud or fall into some ferns we hear thud clunk and they start to clear the mud away and we see some metal, which of course is going to be something that's going to drive fans crazy for the next 14 episodes and the six month wait in between seasons to figure out what the hell this thing is. Like you guys know, when we started this show, I, I didn't have to suffer, with, you know, like like Matt had to suffer and and, uh, and and all the other folks who had to suffer. Uh, week to week watching Lost, but even even that even that moment, the first time that I watched this show through, I was like, "What the hell is that? It's what, what is that?" And even 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 rewatching for this podcast, I was like, "Damn it, I don't want to stop. I don't want to stop." I thought that this batch of episodes really did a wonderful job in hooking me into this specific storyline uh, that we're going to unravel here for the rest of season one. Also. I'm really excited for a group of people to show up. I'm so pumped for that. You guys have no idea. Yeah, I think that's great. And you know what I I really like in this is this is why people got so excited about Lost and also so frustrated later is that even in these episodes now, they're dropping breadcrumbs and showing us small bits of things that won't pay off until much later in the season or, or further down the road, which just speaks to them having a plan, a great show Bible where they knew what the characters backstories were and all that kind of stuff, which is why you watch some other shows like famously 
24 was written like six episodes at a time where you can tell that like this chunk, they sort of knew what they were doing and then they abandoned something for the next six episodes because they didn't actually map out entire seasons so meticulously. But this one lost season one, like all the, the bones are there and it's just them putting the meat on the bones as they go. Um, which is one of those things that now is streaming and like 10, 13, six episodes is really coming back where we start to get hints of stuff early on that pays off much later. Um, and loss was one of the ones that really did that in a big way early on. Do you, um, we're, we're, we're going to veer off uh, course just here a little bit before we say goodbye for this episode, but do you think it's a wise idea as a writer yourself, if you ever develop a TV show, which I hope you do, um, are you going to do a series Bible first or a couple of, or Bible just detailing where the first couple episodes are going to go before you pitch it to, to, to somebody? Well, I think nowadays you need to, for sure, um, have like a, a very clear roadmap that you don't have to stay loyal to, especially once you get a room together. And if people in the room have better ideas, you always go with the best idea wins. But I definitely think that that's one of those things now that because so many shows that were started strong and then like petered off, um, everybody now knows like you got to have some sort of plan and also like stick your head in the sand. Don't alter course because fans on the internet guessed it because 90% of your audience is not on the internet reading every detail. Um, so yeah, if I ever decide to, to write a TV show or anything, I'm hopefully going to have a, a general plan, but also you need to also realize that, you know, we hear about some shows like a, a manifest where they're like, we've mapped out the first six seasons. And it's like, well, dude, you guys are going to be lucky to go three or four so like maybe you need to course correct that because you're not gonna get six the show's not that strong right and no i mean i mean one of the one of the biggest mistakes that you can make as a showrunner today is put your is put the car before the horse yeah right? and that's what so many shows and movies do where like you know you watch a movie that was nothing but an ad for like four movies they're hoping to make, but then that movie tanks and they never get to do the sequels or spinoffs. And you're like, if you had just made a great movie the first time, you might've actually got those sequels that you'd spent nothing but an hour and 20 minutes setting up. The mummy. Hello. As much as I love the guy who directed it, you them, come on. That's a big giant commercial for the dark universe. Well, yeah, we that's like how the, that went. That's the perfect example where, you know, if they had spent more time, not building a universe, but making a great movie, then they might've actually gotten their universe. So that's, that's that. Um, if you guys have any comments, tweet us, let us know. Hashtag radio eight one five. If you want to get in touch with me, Twitter at Matt Crandall is the best spot. Marcelo, where should they reach you? If you guys want to get in touch with me and talk to me about anything. Also, the best place to reach me is on Twitter. I'm at Creek fanatic 88. And one final thing I'll just mention if you are a fan of Lost like we are um, and you're listening to this and you haven't read it, there was an awesome article on Vulture this week, an interview with Daniel Day Kim, where he had he talked about his whole career and it's terrific because the guy's amazing. Um, but he did mention some stuff about how hard it was making Lost and to your point where 
there was so much uh, Korean in the dialogue. Um, so if if anybody was interested in that point that you were bringing up last week uh, about you know that being a, a groundbreaking sort of thing on TV, um, check out the article, the interview with Daniel Day Kim that's on Vulture right now because uh, it was a great read. Also, before we go, I would just like to say uh, hi to our new uh, fans in actually New Zealand. Cause, uh, so thank you, New Zealand audience, for uh, watching our show and giving us a shot. So next week, we will be back as we continue our journey on the island. We will be talking about episodes 12, 13, and 14 of this first season of Lost. So stay safe, stay cool, enjoy some good TV, and we will talk back soon.